Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 172 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 4 and 5, World's First Space Station. The Soyuz program was intended to rejuvenate the Soviet space program by developing space rendezvous and docking capability and practical extravehicular activity without tiring the cosmonaut as had been demonstrated by the U.S. in the Gemini program. These capabilities would be required for the Solyut Space Station program. Soyuz 1, covered in episodes 139 through 141, was launched with the goal of docking with the manned Soyuz 2 craft. But even before the second craft was launched, problems with Soyuz 1 made it clear that Soyuz 2 had to be canceled before the landing of Soyuz 1. This probably saved the lives of the three-man Soyuz 2 crew. I'm sure you all recall Soyuz 1 ended with the death of cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov on April 23, 1967, due to a faulty parachute system. Soyuz 2 would have flown with the same defective system as Soyuz 1, as a result, the Soyuz spacecraft was revised for Soyuz 2 and 3 in 1968. In the meantime, the Soviets did perform a semi-successful docking in automatic mode with Cosmos 186 and Cosmos 188, as covered in episode 143. Soyuz 2 and 3, covered in episode 158, was an attempt at the first Soviet manned docking with an unmanned Soyuz vehicle. Cosmonaut Georgi Beregovoy piloted the Soyuz 3 and attempted to dock with the unmanned Soyuz 2. Beregovoy successfully rendezvoused, but he could not dock with Soyuz 2. Which brings us to Soyuz 4 and 5. The objective of this mission was to dock two manned Soyuz 7K OKs and transfer two cosmonauts from Soyuz 5 to Soyuz 4 by means of a spacewalk and then safely return both crews to Earth. Now let's get to know the four cosmonauts of this mission. The commander of Soyuz 4 was Vladimir Shatilov. He was born in 1927 in Petropavlovsk, North Kakistan Oblast. He graduated from Kachinsk Military Pilot School in 1949. He 
graduated from Monino Military Academy in 1956. He earned his technical science degree in 1972. He was married and had two children. He was selected as a cosmonaut in 1963, and he went through his basic training from January of 63 to January of 1965. After completion of his basic training, Shatilov was initially assigned to Voskhod 3, but that flight was canceled just 10 days before launch. Chief designer Korolov's successor, Vasily Mission, canceled Voskhod 3 because he wanted to concentrate on Soyuz. Soyuz 4 was Shatilov's first of three flights. He also flew in Soyuz 8 and 10. After his cosmonaut career was over, Shatilov succeeded General Nikolai Kamanin as commander of cosmonaut training from 1971 through 1987. Eventually, he was made the aide to the commander-in-chief of the Air Force. He retired from cosmonaut-related duties in September 1991 and from active military duty in 1992. Next we have the flight engineer of Soyuz 5 and one of the two spacewalkers, Alexei Yelizhev. Yelizhev was born on July 13, 1934 in Zendra, Kaluga Oblast with the name Alexei Kuritis. Alexei's father was Lithuanian and he was arrested and sent to a gulag in 1939. So, in 1950, Alexei took the maiden name of his mother, Yelizhev. Therefore, some regard him as also being a Lithuanian cosmonaut. Yelizhev graduated Bauman Higher Technical School in 1957 and earned his postgraduate degree from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology in 1962. He eventually earned a doctorate of technical science degree in 1973. Yelizhev initially worked as an engineer in Sergei Korolev's OKB-1 Design Bureau before being selected for cosmonaut training in May of 1968. Soyuz-5 was his first of four flights. He also flew in Soyuz 4, 8, and 10. In 1985, he retired from the space program and began an administrative position at the Bauman School for several years before retiring fully. Next, we have the flight research engineer for Soyuz 5, Yevgeny Krunov. Krunov was born in Purdy on September 10, 1933, to Vasily Yegorevich and Agrafina Nikolaevna. Early on, he was tagged with the nickname Xenia. He had five brothers and two sisters. Krunov's family were farmers. Krunov began school in 1941. He was initially interested in pursuing farm studies, but he developed an interest in aviation as he watched the planes during World War II. Once he graduated from primary school, he enrolled at the Kashira Agricultural Secondary School on scholarship 
and graduated from there in 1952. His teachers always spoke highly of him and considered him a hard-working student. In 1952, Krunov was drafted into the Soviet Army where he would follow his interest in becoming a pilot and apply for pilot school. Krunov was accepted and continued school in the military at Pavlograd in the Ukraine. Krunov later transferred to the Serov Higher Air Force School in Rostov Oblast, southwestern Russia. Upon graduation, he received the rank of lieutenant. In 1958, Krunov received another promotion to senior lieutenant. Krunov and his wife, Svetlana, had a son on July 13, 1959. Also in 1959, Krunov was interviewed about becoming a cosmonaut, although he was not expressly told that's what he was being interviewed for. Krunov was officially chosen in 1960 as one of the original cosmonauts. His career appeared to have been leading inexorably toward a spacewalk. He was initially assigned to the Voskhod 2 training group, where he supported both Pavel Belyaev and Alexei Leonov. He even wore his spacesuit with them on the morning of the launch of Voskhod 2 in March of 1965. By the end of 1966, Krunov was considered by far the best qualified candidate for the Soyuz to Soyuz space walk. He narrowly missed the chance to perform it in April of 1967 when Vladimir Komarov's mission went tragically wrong. But he still remained the leading contender and continued training in the expectation of eventually flying. Certainly his love of physical exercise proved exceptionally useful. During training runs in the TU-104 and in the vacuum chamber, it was found that exertion levels in his spacesuit were in the order of 600 to 900 calories per hour. Soyuz 5 was Krunov's first flight, and the return to Earth in Soyuz 4 was his last flight. After leaving the space program in 1980, he worked at the 30th Central Scientific Research Institute, Ministry of Defense, Russia. And later, he was appointed to the Chief State Committee for Foreign Economic Relations until his retirement in 1989. He died of a heart attack on May 20, 2000. Our last cosmonaut was the commander of Soyuz 5, Boris Volyanov. Volyanov was born in Irkutsk, Siberia on December 18, 1934. His mother, Yevgenia Volyanova, was a pediatrician and received a title of Honored Doctor of Russia. During World War II, she worked as a surgeon. His family relocated from Siberia and he finished secondary school in Prokopyevsk, Kamirovo Oblast in 1952. The next year, he completed basic pilot training in Pavlodar, Kakistan, and in 1955 from an aviation school in Novosibirsk. From September 1961 to January 1968, he studied 
at the engineering facility of the Zukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy and graduated with a diploma of a pilot engineer cosmonaut. In 1964, Volyanov was assigned as one of two possible commanders training for the Voskhod 1 flight, but he and his fellow crew member Georgi Kedis and Boris Yegorov were bumped off the flight three days before the scheduled launch date, despite being the prime crew. Sergei Korolev was reportedly furious about this decision, but he was told by Nikita Khrushchev, Don't rock the boat. It's not worth it. Having lost his chance to fly on the first Voskhod mission, Volyanov spent a year training for Voskhod 3. He first trained with Georgi Kedis, but Kedis was dropped from active status when the KGB discovered his father had been executed in one of Stalin's purges. Volyanov was then teamed up with Viktor Gorbatko and then Georgi Shonin. But following the death of Sergei Korolev in January 1966, Volyanov was transferred to the Soyuz group and later assigned as a backup for Soyuz 3. Soyuz 5 was his first of two flights. His second flight came in 1976 when he flew Soyuz 21 to the Salyut 5 space station. Later in 1980, Volyanov earned a Ph.D. from Zukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy. After resigning from the space program in 1982, he spent eight years as a senior administrator at the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. After 30 years of service at Star City, in 1990, he retired due to the age limit, with the rank of Colonel. His wife, Tamara, holds a Ph.D. in metallurgy and is a member of the New York Academy of Science. They had two children, a son, Andre, born in 1958, and a daughter, Tatiana, born in 1965. Now that we have met the crew, I'd like to present some mission background information. A key issue for the Soyuz 4 and 5 mission was the question of whether to give cosmonauts active control of their spaceships. This had been hotly disputed since the early days of the Soviet space program. Cosmonaut trainer General Kamanin frequently locked horns with Chief Designer Sergei Korolev over this issue and in Kamanin's memoirs, it was revealed that he was a bitter military man who blamed his country's loss of the moon race on Soviet engineers' unwillingness to yield control of a spacecraft to its crew. In fact, Shatilov, the commander of Soyuz 4, and the Soyuz 5 crew of Volyanov, Yelizhev, and Krunov had barely finished their final exams when, on Christmas Eve, they received the grim news that Apollo 8 had entered orbit around the moon. Working until late that night, for Shatilov, the pot boiled over when the cosmonauts' commander, General Kamanin, told them 
that a recommendation had been received from the Soviet senior leadership for Soyuz 5 to dock automatically and not manually. The four cosmonauts objected, arguing that they had the piloting skills necessary and ought to be permitted to execute a manual docking. Shatilov expressed it best when he said, quote, Here we are debating this for the tenth time while the Americans are orbiting the moon. Unquote. But, to be fair, automation was a key Soviet operating principle. Under the cover names of Cosmos 186 and 188, a pair of unmanned Soyuz spacecraft performed a rendezvous and docking exercise in October 1967. Although they did not achieve a hard link-up, there remained a 3.3-inch gap between them, the mission showed that the Soviets had grasped automated rendezvous and docking. Unfortunately, these flights did not end well. Cosmos 186 suffered a failure of its solar stellar sensor, which altered its descent trajectory into a purely ballistic fall from orbit. It landed hard, but in one piece, on Soviet soil. Cosmos 188, on the other hand, re-entered the atmosphere at too steep an angle, so steep, in fact, that its self-destruct package triggered, spraying debris close to the Soviet-Mongolian border. A fully successful automatic docking occurred in April of 1968 when two more Soyuz, this time under the cover names of Cosmos 212 and 213, rendezvoused automatically and successfully hard docked. In the eyes of many cosmonauts and engineers, this cleared the way for a rendezvous docking and spacewalk flight later in 1968 involving Gregory Beregovoy aboard the active Soyuz-2 and Volyanov, Yelizhev, and Krunov aboard the passive Soyuz-3. But it was not to be. Trials of the spacecraft's backup parachute were not deemed good enough to assign human pilots, and the parachute was considered likely to rip during deployment with a crew of three and a total weight of 2,800 pounds. To solve the weight problem, Chief Designer Mission proposed reducing the Soyuz 3 crew to only two men and postponing the risky spacewalk to a later mission. Others, including Keldish, head of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, were even more cautious refusing to endorse any manned flights until another automated test had been successfully performed. Their reluctance was understandable. The previous year, Soyuz-1 had been lost and its pilot, Vladimir Komarov, killed when both the primary and backup parachutes failed. By the end of May 1968, a compromise was suggested by mission. Two Soyuz would dock in orbit, one of them unmanned, the other carrying a single cosmonaut. Assuming the success of that flight, the next cruise would attempt the transfer mission, perhaps as early as September 1968. Dmitry Ustinov, the head of all Soviet missile and space projects during this period, 
demanded an entirely automated flight. This would slip the intended August date for the manned mission until October at the earliest. On June 10th, the Soyuz State Commission convened and decided to launch the automated flight in July, followed by the joint mission with Beregovoy in September and the docking and spacewalk mission in November or December. To this, Ustinov added a provision that the spacewalk should transfer not one, but two cosmonauts. His request was borne out by Boris Volyanov, whose work in a training version of the bulky spacesuit had revealed a major obstacle. A single spacewalker risked getting stuck in the hatchway between the Soyuz descent and orbital modules. Moreover, if he then experienced difficulties getting outside, there would be no one to help him. The commander in the sealed-off descent module would be unable to assist, making a pair of spacewalkers, Yelizhev and Krunov, capable of supporting each other. This, according to Ustinov, was the only safe and practical option. But to others, it seemed more prudent to adopt the mission plan whereby only one of the spacewalkers would actually perform the external transfer and both missions would return to Earth with crews of two. This avoided the risk of bringing a Soyuz back to Earth with three men and a potentially dangerous parachute situation. But by the end of September 1968, the parachute problems seemed to be solved, and the original plan for both Yelizhev and Krunov to spacewalk over to the other craft was reinstated. During all this debate, another potential stumbling block occurred. It was the size of the hatch. The Soviet spacesuit manufacturer advised General Kamanin that OKB-1 had restricted the diameter of the orbital module's hatch to just 26 inches. A fully suited cosmonaut with his bulky life support gear needed the opening to be at least 27 and a half inches wide. Simulations on the ground and in conditions of temporary weightlessness aboard a modified TU-104 aircraft underlined the problem. When fully pressurized, the suit swelled to 25 and a half inches, just a little less than the diameter of the hatch itself, and the men simply could not get through the hatch without twisting and contorting their bodies in remarkable feats of gymnastics. Kamanin deemed the situation wholly unacceptable, and he persuaded Mission to enlarge the hatch on all subsequent orbital modules to 28 inches. In the meantime, Cosmos 238 was launched in August and apparently conducted at least one major maneuver before touching down after a near-flawless four-day flight. Finally, on October 25th, the unmanned Soyuz 2 was launched, followed by Beregovoy aboard Soyuz 3 the next day. During his mission, Beregovoy managed to rendezvous with his automated target, Soyuz 3, but did not physically dock with it. 
This perplexed Western observers for many years. The Soviets explained that on their first manned flight after the Soyuz 1 disaster, they did not want to subject Beregovoy to any undue risk. But we now know that that was just a cover story. The failure to dock was either due to incorrect configuration of the running lights on Soyuz 2 or cosmonaut error. At the time, there was also suspicion that the IGLA rendezvous device might have been to blame. But that was vigorously denied by its designer, and cosmonaut Fyoktistov agreed that it was simply a case of pilot error. Beregovoy's failure to notice the orientation mismatch with Soyuz 2 caused him to waste all the fuel intended for ship docking and forced managers to cancel the remainder of the rendezvous. Clearly, lessons needed to be learned before the docking of Soyuz 4 and 5. Now, during the docking procedure, Shadilov would have to rely heavily upon the IGLA. Recall from previous episodes that the IGLA was used to control the relative motion and attitude of two space vehicles. The passive vehicle, which carried a radio beacon for the use as a homing aid by its active counterpart. First, the passive vehicle, Soyuz 5 in this case, would transmit a continuous wave beam signal, which the active craft, Soyuz 4, would use to orient itself to acquire its target just like Cosmos 186 and 187 did. Next, Soyuz 4 would start to transmit an interrogation signal to Soyuz 5 through its narrow beam antenna. And finally, Soyuz 5 would switch off its continuous wave beacon and retransmit the integration signals through its own narrow beam antenna to establish a secure lock between the two spacecrafts. Now, another decision had to be made. In what order should the Soyuz be launched? The cosmonauts wanted to fly the passive spacecraft, Soyuz 5, before the active spacecraft, Soyuz 4. This would provide Yelizhev and Krunov an additional time to adapt to the weightless environment before the spacewalk. Additionally, this would allow Beregovoy to follow, not precede, his target. And, if the second launch was cancelled, the joint nature of the mission could be disguised from the outside world by saying that a three-man flight with a spacewalk was a logical step. But in the end, Nikolai Kamanin overruled his cosmonauts on the grounds that it would be too complicated to change the launch plans at such short notice. All the decisions were not made yet, unfortunately. Now we return to where we began. The debate still continued on whether to perform an automatic or manual docking. Ustinov and Space Minister Afanashev continued to press Chief Designer Mission for an automated flight profile. Both 
were aware of how flawlessly this had been executed by Cosmos 186, 188, and Cosmos 212 and 213. And they remained very mindful of Berekovoy's difficulties on Soyuz 3. The matter was mostly decided the day before launch by Mission, who, though he normally favored automated systems, ruled in favor of the cosmonauts. Nevertheless, on the evening before launch, Nikolai Kamanin took Shadilov aside and told him that if he encountered any difficulties, then he should revert immediately to the automatic systems. At last, after all the debate and arguments, the final plan was decided. What was that final plan? Well, here it is. Shadilov would ride alone into orbit on Soyuz 4 first. Soyuz 5 would be launched the next day with Foyanov commanding and Yelizhev and Krunov assigned to perform the spacewalk. Soyuz 4 and 5 would rendezvous and dock. Then Yelizhev and Krunov would spacewalk from Soyuz 5 to Soyuz 4 and remain there. Next, Soyuz 4 would return to Earth with the three cosmonauts, and then Volyanov in Soyuz 5 would return to Earth as well. to this archived episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.